It is great to be back worshiping with God's people in Philadelphia. Uh, as Steve said, we did uh, watch on uh, streaming last week, but I'll tell you this is my own personal uh, deep conviction and feeling. I could never live on that. Uh, thank you, Peter, for a great message, but you can't experience this worship in your living room. And uh, I, I confess I did not take the Lord's table because I'm so used to taking it with my brothers and sisters. Uh, it's not only communion with Christ, it's communion with you. So this is something special, and I am really glad to be back this morning. And uh, I have to confess that Something must have broke loose in my tear ducts in Cameroon because I was overwhelmed so many times with emotion. I think I cried more while I was preaching, so uh, it may happen this morning. I, I, I'm just for, forewarning you. Uh, I remember one night that John and Steve and I were uh, enjoying some time together later at night, and uh, we began singing together the song that we'll sing at the end, This Is Amazing Grace. And it's probably about midnight out there, and we're just raising our voices. And I think all of us, maybe in unison, just began to weep. This is... Amazing grace. So we always look forward to coming back because there are people here whom we love very deeply, especially our family, our spouses, our kids, our church. But whenever we leave Cameroon, we realize we leave a piece of our heart there. People we love, people who came to Christ, people we were able to teach and we're thankful for that. So I say hello to my Cameroonian friends who are watching this, this afternoon. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon there, and I know that some are watching. And you know that we love you all the way from the USA. But as I thought about God's amazing grace, I decided that for the next five or six weeks, that's what I want to talk about. I just want to think more about God's amazing grace. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to talk about how that grace affects our justification, our sanctification, our transformation, you know, our Christian living, how it sustains us in everyday life. But this morning, I want to look at a picture, a portrait of that grace in the book of Ruth. I'm looking in Ruth chapter 1. I will look at the first five verses, and then I will jump to the end of that book, uh, chapter 4, verses 8 through 22. Because when I read the book of Ruth, I, I'm reminded that God is full of surprises. He comes to us in ways that are perplexing at times when he wants to accomplish his purpose. It's not always what we expect or how we expect it. Not only surprising, but for many, his ways are alarming. And that is why people resist this great, gracious God, because they 
don't understand his ways. It defies their thinking. I admit, as a human being, I like life to be predictable. I prefer comfort over hardship. Uh, I don't want to suffer. I would rather be healthy than sick. And I would like to live in a world where I could expect that tomorrow will be better and uh, or the good life that I enjoy in this moment will be a life that I can always have. That's the way we are made. That's what we long for. We like things to be right, and our sense of rightness, unfortunately, often stands in the way of what God wants to do and how he wants to show us his grace. As Gary prayed, we live in a time of pandemic. COVID-19 has created circumstances that bring about great changes in many lives, great discomfort, illness, economic loss. Uh, And through it, there are different uh, effects that come about. I know people who through this time have experienced such a deeper grace of God so that they have been drawn closer to him and their life is filled with greater peace and greater joy. And at the same time, I know people who have resisted God's ways, have not tasted his grace, and their circumstances have made them bitter and angry, and for some has brought them to despair. I would like to think that the world is going to get better, but I know that That's probably not the case. We live in a world of great cultural change, social upheaval, resistance to biblical morality, a growing disdain and ridicule of Christianity and Christian values. I'm not looking for a better world here. I'm really not. But I am looking for and believing that in this very difficult world, there is a God of grace who continues to show himself in marvelous ways. There is no utopia here. There is no ideal life. There's no life without struggle. There's no life without suffering. Suffering, sacrifice, COVID-19, and whatever comes next are part of the fallen world in which we live, but at the same time, it is that world in which God chooses to show his amazing grace. We know that because if you're a believer, you know that the ultimate reversal of our human expectation was the death of Jesus Christ. That horrible tragic suffering of one who was perfect and innocent. His cruel death brings about the salvation, the redemption of many. Who would have thought, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, the wisdom of the world could not ever dream that God would use the incarnation and death of Jesus to bring about such a great salvation. What I want over the next few weeks is for all of us 
to gain a greater appreciation for the, the grace of God, the generous expressions of the grace of God. And by grace, I simply mean this. I mean his goodness, the display of his goodness to the unworthy and the undeserving. The moment you think you deserve it, you will never taste grace. But when you know that you are unworthy and undeserving, but that there's a God who is so good that in spite of who you are, He can show grace to your life, you will be overwhelmed with this God. My message is simple today from the beginning of Ruth and the end of Ruth. I want us to see how God works in an imperfect world through imperfect lives to accomplish his perfect will. If you're familiar with Ruth, where it fits in the storyline of the Bible, then you know that it takes place in the time of the judges, Joshua judges Ruth. Well, Ruth takes place in the time of the judges, a time when we read that every man did what was right in his own eyes. It was one of the saddest eras in the history of Israel when the nation over and over again went through repeated cycles of apostasy, of abandoning God. Ruth is part of what we call the Bethlehem Trilogy. It is three stories, all with some sort of focus on the city of Bethlehem. If you read the book of Judges, you read the first story. The story is about a young Levite from Bethlehem who is hired. He becomes a mercenary priest for the tribe of Dan. And the tribe of Dan establishes sort of a cult center in the northern part of Galilee. And this cult center, this place of alternate and false worship, uh, becomes the downfall of many in, in Israel. It is a sad story, and its effects of what took place there reach all the way into the time of the New Testament. The second story in Judges, the second Bethlehem story, is found in verses 19 to 21. It's about another Levite who has a concubine from Bethlehem. And this concubine, as he travels through a certain city, this concubine is brutally raped by multiple men. And this Levite is so enraged that he takes her body and he cuts it up in pieces and he sends it through all the tribes of Israel so that they will come and destroy this tribe of Benjamin that is at fault for the rape of his concubine. The tribe of Benjamin is nearly destroyed. It's a sad time of idolatry, of immorality, of brutality in the history of Israel. 
But the third story we're looking at this morning, and that's of Ruth. The first two are bad. They are sad. They, if you read them, you come to despair if you see nothing else. But the story of Ruth is a good story. I must say that as you read these Bethlehem stories, they are in that storyline of the Bible because they are preparing us for not only the great earthly King David who will come from Ruth, but they're ultimately preparing us for the greatest king of all, Jesus Christ, who was promised that he would come from that tribe of Judah from which Boaz comes. Again, what I want us to see this morning is the amazing grace of God. How a good and gracious God works in an imperfect world through imperfect lives, living in imperfect circumstances to accomplish your will. And in case you don't get it, the story is about you because you live in this imperfect world. And none of us have perfect circumstances And we are all imperfect people. But God is the one who shows grace in times like that. So again, I'm looking at two passages. The first one is verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. And for a moment, I want to talk about God's grace at work in an imperfect world, in imperfect circumstances. Listen to our text. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left with, without her two sons and her husband. When I read those verses, I see imperfect times. I see tragedy. I see at least seven tragedies. It says when the judges ruled, which again reminds us that this is the time period of moral degeneration in the time of Israel, the time of apostasy, and it is a difficult time. It tells us there was famine in the land, and it doesn't tell us why, but perhaps knowing the, the blessing and cursing of Deuteronomy, the famine is in the land because the land is apostate. They have departed from the living God, and they are experiencing the judgment of God. And then it says, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab, which is strange for an Israelite to do. Because for an Israelite to be in the land, 
that God had promised was to be in the place of blessing, the place of promise. And to be out of the land was to be in a place without hope and, and without blessing. And then it tells us Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And what can be more tragic, more heartrending than the loss of someone to whom you have covenanted your life and you have given your life in the most d- deepest and intimate of ways. Naomi's husband died. And her two sons married Moabite women. You may be aware that the Moabites were near relatives of the Israelites. Remember Abraham's nephew, Lot, fathered the Moabites through an incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. His daughter got him drunk so that she could bear a child through her father. And that's where the Moabites came from. Now, the Bible doesn't, didn't tell Jews that they could not marry Moabites, but it did say that no Moabite for the 10th generation would ever enter the assembly of the Lord. So there was sort of a taboo on Moabites, and yet the two sons married Moabite women. And then our text tells us that Malon and Kilian died 10 years later, her two sons Some would say, I know Jewish commentators say, but we don't know that that's the way it was, but Jewish commentators would say that their death was judgment for marrying Moabite women. We don't know why they died, but after 10 years of marriage, both of them die. It's a tragedy for both mother and wives. In the first century, in the, uh, the, the, the world of, in the ancient world, to be a woman without a husband and without sons, without protection, without provision, was a very difficult time. I think I mentioned before that I watched, I believe it was on Netflix, a documentary of the plight of homeless women in Saudi Arabia. Because in that culture, women are sort of second-class citizens. And if they are divorced or they are widowed and they have no sons to take care of them, they end up living on the streets without protection, without provision. That is where Naomi finds herself at this point in her life. Five verses at least six or seven statements of tragedy. And if you were reading these Bethlehem stories in sequence, then you might conclude that to depart from Bethlehem eventually ends in trouble and ends in tragedy. But thankfully, the story of Ruth does not end in verse 5 of chapter 1. It takes a whole nother step forward and begins to take other step, steps forward. It is a reversal of fortune. 
I know some people may read Judges 17 through 21 and read those two Bethlehem stories of the tragedy and the horror. And you might want to say, as maybe you say in life sometimes, I can't take another tragedy. I can't take another disappointment. I can't bear any more pain. That's often how we respond to life. But if you were to close the book of Ruth at verse 5, if you were to say that your life where it is with all of its pain, with all of its suffering, with all of its disappointment, if you were to say that this is where I am and will always be, that would be a tragedy. Because God is the one who is writing the story of your life. And God is always good. He is always a God of grace to his people. And despite what our circumstances are, God wants to meet us where we are. One day someone anonymously left me a number of books on my desk, which, by the way, you can do that anytime. I love books, and when I'm done with them, Peter will put them on his shelf. But they left me a number of books. I, I give them to Peter to put on himself, his shelf. Uh, and one of them was by C.S. Lewis. And it was on C.S. Lewis's use of humor. It was called Surprised by Laughter. And when I think about life, when I think about the story of Ruth, I think about my own life. I can see how often God's grace has brought me from tragedy to laughter. Those who study the Bible as literature, Christians who have a high view of the Bible as the Word of God, but also study it as literature, do some wonderful things as they look at the, the book of Ruth. One of, the, one of the writers I've enjoyed is Reg Grant. He was, uh, got his Ph.D. As, at Dallas Seminary, and he did his Ph.D. dissertation on the entire book of Ruth as a piece of literature. And uh, he says that the book of Ruth, in literary terms, moves from tragedy through anti-romance and then to comedy through romance. And by that he means in literary terms. Romance, he says, is, is literature that reflects the ideal human society. Joy and harmony pervade the atmosphere. That's how he would describe romance. And that's how all of us want life to be. We want joy and harmony. We, we like stories that end that way. We like books that, 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 that set forth that that, that image. He says anti-romance is the opposite of romance and portrays a society in bondage. There's a, there's a distinct absence of joy and harmony. 
And tragedy in literature is an event that drags the romantic ideal down into the anti-romantic ideal. And comedy pulls it back up into a joyous romance once again. And so he looks at the book of Ruth as a wonderful story of romance, anti-romance, and how comedy, especially the, the wonderful marriage of Ruth and Boaz, how it lifts it back up into what we would think of as the ideal life. But when you look at it, it's not just a great piece of literature. It is a wonderful illustration of God's powerful display of grace. It prepares us, not only as a Bethlehem story, not only as providing the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but it prepares us by the very display of grace to appreciate the greatest display of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, I begin reading Ruth and I I see heartache, I see disappointment, I see betrayal, I see loneliness, I see this struggle to survive. I see your life in those first five verses. I, I see my life at times in these first five verses. And they remind me that, that I must wait and long for and seek a sovereign and gracious God who is writing my story. He allows the death of loved ones. He allows you to be in a place of famine. He allows you to be in a, in a, in a strange place of, of, uh, filled with idolatry like Moab. He allows your loneliness, your struggle, your disappointment, your heartache, only because he wants to show you his amazing grace. Maybe today you look with despair at your life as one tragedy after another. I've listened to to many of your stories how God has reached down by his grace and met you in that difficult time. Let me uh, tell you the story of a young lady who uh, contacted Grace Church through Facebook. She may even be watching right now and she lives in uh, Laos, Nigeria. She's a young Cameroonian girl, an Anglophone, speaks English, whose village was burned and destroyed by militants, her mother, her siblings, a little child, all driven from their home, everything lost, left behind, running through the forest for their life. And as they run, 
the family is separated, and she ends up from northern, northwestern Cameroon, she ends up in Nigeria. And there she is, sleeping on a bench with nothing to eat, and she writes a note on Facebook. Now, I confess, I am cautious, I'm a skeptic, and, uh, and I thought, man, this is just some Nigerian scheme trying to get money. So I asked questions. I conversed with, with her and found out that this was truly a young Christian sister living in a very difficult place, crying out for God to help her. And he leads her to Grace Church. How? Maybe it's the money we pay for Google ads, but I would say it's God's providence. And we were able to help her, put her in a room, put food on her table, pray with her, encourage her. 10,000 miles away, pray with her that she'd find her mother. She did. Pray with her that she would find her little nephew. She did. Still praying that she will find her other siblings. And I asked her the other day, I said, may I, may I talk about you a little in my sermon on Sunday without mentioning your name? You are such a wonderful example of God's grace meeting you in a difficult time in your life. And she responded, yes, God has been with me, I must tell you. If not for him, I would be nowhere to be found. He is too faithful and so good. Preach it, she said. Tell them all glory goes to him. May his name be hallowed forever. Thank you so much. I love you. This is the God of amazing grace. But he's not only a God who displays his grace through imperfect times and circumstances, but he's a God who displays his grace through very imperfect people. The end of the book, chapter 4. We read the wonderful story of how Boaz, the uh, near relative of Ruth, eventually marries her. He's what is called the kinsman redeemer. And uh, it, it's a wonderful story. It's, it's a series of messages in itself. But I'm uh, not interested this morning in that part of it. I'm more interested in what results from the union of Boaz and Ruth. And I'll pick it up here in verse 12 if I can read through my tears. 
It says, through the offspring the Lord gives you by the young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom someone bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you to your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child laid him in her lap and cared for him. The the woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Uh, Amenadeb, Amenadeb, the father of Nashon, Uh, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. You know, sometimes we read these genealogies, and many times we don't read them. We just skip them, because that's genealogy. But what I find in this genealogy that leads up to David and ultimately that leads to Jesus is that God is a God who works through such imperfect people. I mean, if you and I wanted to accomplish something great in this world, we probably would not choose those who are in this line like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba, uh, all of whom are mentioned in Matthew chapter 1 and who are implied uh, here in Ruth. Most of us, and I confess I'm guilty at times, do not see possibility in some people. That my grace is not as magnanimous and uh, indiscriminate as the grace of God. I look at people and as people once looked at me and said, you know, you're a a hopeless rebel drug addict and, you know, nothing's ever going to happen with your life. And I confess that sometimes I'm not as forgiving as I should be or hopeful as as I should be. And we are all inclined to exclude people on the basis of a social status or their past deeds or their political party or their past connections. But when I read this genealogy, I find that God's grace is indiscriminate. That is, whoever you are, where you are, if God can see a humble, repentant heart, you can meet the grace of God. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. 
Who was Perez? Perez was the illegitimate son of Judah through his daughter-in-law, Tamar. If you remember that story in Genesis where his daughter-in-law disguises herself as a prostitute and Judah, you know, is open to a prostitute and goes into her and she conceives and bears a son by her father-in-law. This is Perez, the illegitimate son of a uh, of his father-in-law. Salmon. Salmon was the husband of Rahab, the harlot. Apparently, when Rahab, after she had done her part in, in uh, enabling the downfall of Jericho and the victory of the people of God, she became part of Israel. And there was a man in Israel, Salmon, who could look past her past as a prostitute, who married her, and here they are. They have a son whose name is Boaz. And we have Ruth. Who's Ruth? She's a Moabite woman. She's an outcast. She's forbidden to enter the congregation of Israel. And here we have Boaz, whose mother was a harlot, Ruth, a Moabite, who was an outcast from Israel, and God pours his grace into their lives, brings them together in a wonderful love story, a, a great display of God's sovereign grace. And the result of that is they bear a son, Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, ultimately that leads to Jesus Christ. When you read the story of Ruth, when you read this simple genealogy, you should at least come away believing that there is a sovereign God at work in difficult, imperfect places, working through imperfect people. He's at work. You can't ever say, I've blown it so badly, God's done with me. No, God says, I can take a harlot. I can take someone from that, that home that has such a, 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 a distorted, immoral uh, history, and I can use them. But in all of this, we... If you read the story of Ruth, we, we learn from her that in the midst of these tragic times and knowing that you are an imperfect person, you must humble yourself before God. I love Ruth's words to Naomi when Naomi was going back to Bethlehem and, and told her two daughter-in-laws, no, you stay in Moab and Ruth said this, she said, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. I will forsake the idolatry, the comfort 
the home of Moab. I will leave it all behind because I want you and I want your God to be my God. And God became her God and showed her amazing grace in an imperfect time, an imperfect place, imperfect circumstances. But that's how God works. And it all begins when you come to Christ and salvation. As Romans says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God commended his love toward us while we were still sinners. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. God looked down and said, I see there somebody who's ungodly, who's wicked, who's weak, who's my enemy, who's a sinner. But my grace can overwhelm that. I will never forget the day when God's amazing grace visited Feltonville. It actually knocked on the door of 219 East Rockland Street. At least two times, one in 1970 and one in 1973, and I'm sure many other times, in a neighborhood that not as rough as today, but still at a time when there was cultural upheaval, drugs and race riots and an imperfect world, imperfect circumstances, and absolutely imperfect people. But God's grace reaches down and changes a repentant rebel's heart and gives me new life and gave Steve new life. And that God of grace who showed himself so wonderfully that night is still the God of unchanging Amazing grace. So do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you humble yourself before him and say, I am weak. I'm unworthy. I need grace. Let's pray together. Father, we need grace, and you have grace, and you're generous. You're looking for broken hearts, for humble hearts, for contrite hearts that simply come in the name of and through the work of Jesus Christ and ask for grace. Give grace, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.